Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Thank you, and, uh, and thanks everyone for coming on a, on a Friday. Um, what I would like to talk about is, is the relation between open data and the open government movement, if there is an open government movement, and how we can really get the two of them to work and collaborate together um, more and, and as much as they possibly can. So I'd like to use this opportunity to explore those synergies. And I'm assuming, I'm guessing probably rightly, that the bulk of knowledge in the room is probably more on the open data side and open government side with some overlap. Um, so just a couple of the definitions to start with. I don't need to bore anyone with the definition of open data. Open government, I think, helps to define a little bit, and then I'll give you a really quick sort of potted history from my perspective. So open government is a combination of three things. Um, transparency, so information about what government does. Citizen engagement and public engagement in the process of either delivering services or making policy. And that's a chunk which I think we underemphasize a little. And then the last one is accountability. So the ability of external actors to hold government to account. This isn't, you know, it's a definition amongst others, but I think it's broad enough to make sense to a lot of people. And the point being that open government is the interaction between those three, between transparency, putting information out, having people engage with it at different steps within the process, either making policy or delivering stuff, and then holding government accountable. So it's the interaction between them. It sounds slightly obvious, but there has been, and recently, there's been a lot of focus on pushing information out and making government more and transparent. And now, and you know, see people nodding, and now, and we've said this for a few years, but still, and now people are like, well, you know, how do we get people to use the data, how do we get people to engage, etc. So that's sort of briefly on, on definitions. I, I, I don't want to bore you, I'll be really quick, but I thought it'd be interesting to give a very quick history of what I would see as the open government movement over the past 15 or so years for two reasons which I'll come back to. Um, my sense is, and I'm talking globally mostly, people really started to put big efforts in transparency and accountability from the late 90s onwards. And what's interesting from my perspective, in the late 90s, early 2000s, really this was the anti-corruption movement. The work focused on fighting corruption. There wasn't much concern around citizens. There really wasn't much concern on data. And the focus was really on building institutions. So funding anti-corruption commissions and thinking about all sorts of different ways that states could be better to fight corruption. Right? There's a context on that that I won't go into detail right now. But the point is, let's focus on citizens. The only way that citizens really came into the issue was around big awareness-raising campaigns. So remember, big posters outside of Sarajevo in 2002 or so, you know, photos of people giving bribes and saying, no, bribery is a bad thing. And that's about as much as people were seen to be engaged. You know, you needed to tell them that bribery was a bad thing and they shouldn't have, you know, they shouldn't give or accept bribes. So that's the picture in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then there was a flip. To, to be honest, I won't hazard a sort of, you know, quirky explanation of why it flipped. But around the middle of the mid-2000s, 2005, 6, whatever, around that, people started to get much, much more focused on the role of citizens. And then from this initial interest on building institutions <coughs> and the state's capacity to deal with corruption, etc., suddenly everyone got really enthusiastic about the so-called demand side and the potential for me, for you, for everyone in the room, in the street, everyone, to be able to put pressure on governments outside to change, so to put pressure on governments for anything, you know, whether to be more, whether to be less corrupt, more efficient at delivering services, whatever. And that's an interesting one to, to tease out. Around that moment, people started, and it's not a particularly catchy phrase, to talk about transparency and accountability. 
So what do you do? I, I work on transparency and accountability. Um, and, and, and so we had this sort of, you know, sort of ch changing moment there. I think what was, I mean, my sense, I mean, in parallel, there's an interesting thing happening, which is the US and the UK started to focus much more on open data. So 2007, 2008, the power of information reports in the UK, and then bang, in the States, January 2009, Obama comes to power, signs the Open Government Directive. So, for, you know, sort of wonky people like me working in this field for a while, everyone was taken aback by the Open Government Directive. No one really knew what the Americans were talking about when they were talking about open government. It was all really exciting, and we were really caught, caught unawares. Um, and what, partly what it meant is also more focus on people, right? on citizens, on opening up government. And then, just fast-forwarding, and then I'll, I'll stop that little history piece. A couple of years later, we helped launch the Open Government Partnership, which some of you involved with, or, or many of you in different ways, which is now 59 different countries, spans over 2 billion people. And what that partly did is to really push this notion of open government being the way that we talk about this field, right? In, in slightly protracted ways, meaning that not everyone agrees, um, but open government became more of a defining discourse. So why, so why did I choose to, to start my talk with, uh, with this little story? My sense is for two, two reasons. One of them is to tell a story as to how something that really started in quite a dry, bureaucratic way, sending people to build capacity of government officials to be better at fighting corruption, ended up being you know, much more people power, engagement of citizens. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is also just to tell a story of how we don't have a coherent way of explaining what we are and what we do. And that's bothered me for a while. And this is what I'll come back to in the linked open data. The human rights movement, what do you do? You're a campaign on human rights. It's very clear, right? The environmental movement, you can fiercely disagree, climate change, etc. but still, the environmental movement is part of an overall family. And so this is what I'm trying to get to, which is the degree to which you know, open government actually brings together a number of people who believe in broadly the same things. And I'll, I'll tell you why, why I think it's important. Um, so one of the reasons, and I'll come to this in a second, it, I think it's important is that this community of groups that work on open government, they're very siloed. They're very disparate. People are living in their little bubbles, right? Um, you have people, you know, dear friends of mine, great, amazing people, some of them maybe in this room have been working on freedom of information, mostly lawyers, um, since the late 80s, early 90s. I forget the exact stats, but roughly in 1990, I think you had 14 freedom of information laws around the world. Now it's 89 or so. It's in the high 80s. So huge push there. People who devote their, their life's work on transparency of budgets, monitoring budgets, engaging with budgets. But we're still, and this is my, my little silo, silo slide, we inhabit silos, um, which, you know, you may say, that's fine, that's how innovation happens, people, you know, they specialise, they know one thing really, really well, and then they push for it, and isn't it great that we've got 89 freedom of information laws around the world? Now, my frustration here is that our field really, really matters, and at times, like you saw in Dexim still now, and over the past couple of weeks, our field gets hundreds of thousands of people in the street. And one of the reasons why, um, and I don't know if any Turks in the room, forgive me, I'm not Turkish, but I've been reading about it, and I wasn't in Istanbul, but interested. One of the reasons my understanding is why people are very frustrated right now in Istanbul is essentially lack of having a say in the way that government operates. So whether it's, you know, there's a shopping mall in Gezi Park or not, or whether it's 
um, Erdogan wants to build a bridge on the Bosphorus, I was fascinated to hear people in different interviews saying, look, he didn't ask us. Why didn't he at least consult and ask us what we wanted? You know, rather than just bang, you know, we'll put a bridge on the Bosphorus, forget it. And so what, what I've been trying to puzzle for a while, and, and my point is, you know, how can open data help, is what's the relation between something which is, you know, still quite geeky and technocratic and you know, it's very hard to have a conversation with Fred in the pub and say, what do you do? Well, I work for open government, so I'm a freedom of information activist. But at the same time, you know, this generates really real energy from people in, in, in very large numbers. And we've seen it, we saw it in Egypt, we're still seeing it in Egypt, we've seen it in Turkey, and we're seeing it in Brazil right now. So, the... Come back to that in a second. The, my question on open data, and, and what I'd like to, to, to get a sense of, of you, is, you know, maybe I'm just a, a crazy utopian and I have far, far too, too you know, sort of high expectations for what open data can do to our fields. But question is, is open data something that can really unify and bring together this fairly disparate field? Mainly because open data, I think there is a risk for us to become a silo, but it's very cross-cutting, right? It matters across a very large number of issues, and I'll come to that in a second, whether you care about freedom of information, if you care about extractives, if you care about revenues from oil, gas, mining companies, if you care about budgets, you name it, if you care about healthcare, education, I don't need to convince you. The open data piece is relevant. And that's rare. It's really rare to have something that's as cross-cutting as an issue. That's one point. And the second point is that the open data piece potentially can get us to people. Right? If we're doing our job right, if we can really liberate enough data at scale, and if we understand what makes people tip and what makes people engage, my hope is that the open data and the confluence of open data and open government agenda can actually make it relevant to people because it becomes disaggregated that we can figure out what your particular interest is. So if your interest is getting information on the primary school that your kid attends, great. If you're interested you know, engaging in whether there should be a bridge built on the Bosphorus or not, great. If you're interested in knowing more about you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars that Nigeria is getting in oil revenues, great. And that's something my sense is quite precious. So again, the cross-cutting piece and the fact that it can influence and engage people directly. And I'll come back to that towards the end, but I think that's one of the big wins of the G8 agenda this year, because the Open Data Charter that a lot of us have been working on for a few months, but also, and I think a little underemphasized in the meetings over the past few days, the fact that really the Open Data, open data cuts across you know, so much of what the G8 has been working on, which I'll come back to. Transparency of extractive industries, transparency of tax, taxation, which is in the papers every day at the moment. And so that's something which... I would, and the reason I'm giving the presentation is I would love to encourage anyone and everyone working on open data to think about to think about how they can engage. So in practice, there already is quite a lot happening, um, but there could be really a lot more. Some of you may be familiar with the International Aid Transparency Initiative. The interesting thing about so IATI uh, is the, the sexy acronym. The interesting thing about IATI is it's so a it's very familiar to people working on open government. Um, it's a transparency initiative, it's a multi-stakeholder, so-called transparency initiative, which means that government, civil society, private sector sit around the same table to thrash it out. From a data perspective, it's fascinating because it's the only and the first multi-stakeholder initiative focused on transparency that takes its cue as the development of a technical data standard, right? So it's the only multi-stakeholder initiative out there focused on transparency, 
but start saying the problem is a data problem. And the problem that they've been working on is sharing of data and comparability of data between 27, 35 different aid agencies, and the complete nightmare it is to be the Minister of Finance of an aid-dependent country, be it Uganda, Afghanistan, or Kenya, and to have literally no idea of being able to make sense, no way to make sense of the different flows coming into your country. Who's funding education, who's funding this, who's giving core budget support. So comparability was a big issue. But for my purposes here, what's interesting is that they started out saying, you have a data problem, and they then crafted a, a technical data standard. Um, there's, there's and, and, and Tim is in the room here, and others may be working on open contracting. There's a lot of work, and my sense is that some of the most exciting work in the field right now, taking place in the area of open contracting and opening up contracts, it's exciting in a couple of ways. One of them is, again, it's a cross-cutting issue. It's a silo buster. If we get contracts to open up, and it will be hard and political to get it done, again, it becomes relevant to, you know, if the government has subcontracted you know, street cleaning or you know, parts of the education service to the private sector, contracts really matter. Likewise, if you care about, again, my example in terms of, and we'll come to it, mining or big oil contracts, multi-million dollar contracts, contracts and knowing what's in those really matters. So this is a piece of work done by, by open contracting, which is taking, essentially scraping and taking word documents, which are the contract, and figuring out how they would make sense as data. So contract type, <coughs> date, party, signatories, um, which is, I think Chris Taggart isn't in the room right now, but I'll paraphrase something I think very powerful that he says, which is, and this may be obvious, I'm sure it's obvious to you guys, but the, the open government community doesn't think in terms of data, right? So you have people who are obsessed and pushing for transparency of contracts. Yes, we need contract transparency. How are we going to do it? It's very political, it's very difficult. But what they're not thinking is if we're successful at this, it's not 4,000 contracts that we'll get, and we won't be peering over them with a cup of tea, it'll be 4 million. And if we have 4 million contracts to get signal in the noise, we'll need to look at it from a data perspective. And again, so that, if that helps, that's an example of, of how the two meets. Um, just um, another one, a, a reality, which is the um, mining contracts are now opened up in open formats in Guinea. The president of Guinea was at the G8 meeting last weekend, Amazing. We had five heads of state talking about transparency on Saturday in London. The meeting was headed by Cameron. We had Tanzania, Ghana, Senegal, and Guinea, all you know, pushing forward, announcing commitments that they've made around transparency of extracted or tax. So this is, you know, it's great, and it's also my anxiety, which is we're at such a high level for a relatively, again, sort of more technocratic, geeky field that we've captured the head of state level, which is a big deal. Part of the reason I think the story where we captured it, which is something else, is tax, right? And that the tax piece in a climate of austerity, everyone starts to get interested. But the point is, whatever reason why we captured the head of state's attention, we need to keep it, and we need to make as best we can with that over the next few years. Um, so again, a couple of examples. Um, on the extractive side, the big initiative globally focusing on transparency of extractive industries is called EITI. Um, another sexy acronym, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. The reason I'm putting this up now is that contrary to IATI, the International Age Transparency Initiative, EITI didn't look and doesn't look as of yet at the problem as a data problem. Right? So EITI is essentially a reconciliation mechanism where you can say companies give X amount to the government, governments have received X amounts like an auditing mechanism, but they're still, you know, the more they become successful, the more open data needs to be a key of the solution 
that they're presenting. And if you're interested, we could go into that in more detail in the, in the questions. Um, again, on the I'm just giving you a lot of examples to, to get a sense of the field. On the budget side, some great work by OKF and others around budget visualizations, mapping the money. But still, we lack a fundamental piece of the equation right now. So there's an initiative called the Global Initiative for Fiscal Transparency, the GIFT, which has big, heavy players behind it. The IMF, um, Ming Zhu, the deputy director of the IMF, sits on a committee, high levels of the World Bank. They're not looking at the data piece. Their interest is around transparency of budgets, citizen participation in the budget process, which is great. But no one's looking at it as a data problem. No one's thinking about, so everyone's concerned around, are government budgets out there and publicly available, right? Bang. <coughs> One step further, no one's yet really looking at, is the budget information out there in open formats? There are some, right? But then one step beyond that, is the budget information comparable and interoperable? No one. So in terms of looking at data standards and how they may be needed to enable us to follow the money, right? It's a, it's a big it's a big gaping hole, which is something to me of, of huge interest. And it comes back to the different communities of practice. You have people who've devoted their lives to looking at budgets and pushing for budgets to be open and people to be involved in the budget process. And then you've got people like the IMF and the bank, and part of their job is to set norms for countries as to how the budget process works and how transparent it is or not, etc. And then you've got the open data people. And partly what I'm trying to do is bring those together in, in one conversation. So just to, uh, to finish up, again, yeah, that, that's the, those are the, sort of you can't see one on the, I think it's President of Ghana on the left. Um, you know, five heads of state talking about transparency, accountability, when it comes to extractives, land deals, tax, and then the big announcement around the Open Data Charter. Hugely exciting. That was last weekend. What do we do now? Right? How can we concretize that? How can we make it real? In each one of those discussions, there's a handful of advocates on the Open Data side, but still, as of now, far, far too few. So what I'm really trying to do is to bring, bring those conversations together. So uh, I'll finish in a second, but what, what, as, a, as a sort of postscriptum, partly what I'm interested to know is, is this stuff just blindingly obvious to you and all of you working on this already? When I talked to colleagues on the governance side, I was talking to, I shouldn't name them, I was talking to someone who heads one of the major multi-stakeholder initiatives on transparency two days ago, and he's like, great, you know, the data thing, really exciting. Oh, what a headache. He's like, why? You know, like, we don't speak the same language, like, the data geeks, it's just great, but they don't understand what we do on the government side, and like, how can we help us, you know, bring the two together? How can we help us have a conversation? So that's what I'm trying to really to tease out. Um, so this isn't, to be honest, I'm trying to figure, figure this slide out. It's not a perfect slide, but for what it's worth, Ideally, what I'm trying to, to push for and what I'm trying to, to help groups do is not all, but a lot of the work that I showed you before essentially has to do with money, right, and following the money. Um, and we've worked, or the community and groups working on this have spent years on the issue, but it's still very manual. The groups that are following the money tend to be investigative journalists, right, not your average citizen. And what I'm thinking and what we're trying to do in my sense of the promise of the data piece is how we can link this up, how open data standards and contracts data can give a much better sense and can you know, empower people to get engaged in government revenues, be it aid or extractives or illicit financial flows or tax, the whole G8 stuff, expenditures, and then how it actually makes a, makes a difference and an impact on people's lives. So my sense is it's a very good thing. 
where we are now, which is that we have more of a discourse and more of a way of talking about our work, that open government has been you know, the, more of the accepted way of talking about transparency and accountability, that it puts much more of an emphasis on citizens, that there's more of a space for the open data community to engage. But I thought I should also end on, on, a, on a sort of you know, quizzical or, or sceptical note, which is the risk of open washing, right? And a lot of people are concerned about this in, in a number of different countries, which is the flip side to what I've said is, you know, open this, open that, open whatever is very nice, but if it's an excuse to forget about the hard decisions and to put easy data sets out there and not focus, so, you know, harder ones, public registries of beneficial ownership, um, you know, postcodes in the UK, a number of much more difficult decisions more politically or in terms of you know, relationships and money and resources and revenues in favour of easier ones. And I just I want to acknowledge and not, because that might be some kind of questions, there's a growing you know, push and group that are concerned about this, and I think rightly. And partly what we need to do is have a much more open conversation around what open government means, what's the potential, what open data really means, and then to pin the level of excellence in this field so that governments can't get away with saying, hey, we're open because, look, you know, we opened this little thing there, isn't it great? Let's go and do something else. And that's, in part, you know, one of the excitements around the Open Data Charter, which is we need to use it to pin what it means, to pin the level of excellence, to pin a standard that we can then you know, hold governments to account to and engage with them on the basis of, of that particular standard. That's my presentation. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.